Splicecast. If you're someone that truly believes in your writing, the process, go through the process. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, but then you just got to try. According to dictionary.com, the word block can be to make the movement or flow difficult or impossible. For example, roadblock, blockage, cockblock. Okay, the last one came from the Urban Dictionary, but the meaning of the block in the combined word is still to delay or stop something from happening. In our two-part finale for the second season of the No or Not podcast, we're going to look at a group of local artists who, when they're having a bad day, suffer from writer's block. This is when a writer is stuck. They can be stuck on how to start a book, how to finish it, or how to keep going when too far in to stop, but the end seems too far away. Over the next two episodes, we're going to meet seven writers and one publisher living and working in Singapore to pull back the curtain on the business of selling words on paper. I'm Ken Dalbridge, and this is the Know or Not Podcast. I'm an audio editor and sound designer. When I first came to Singapore, I ran the audio post suite for MTV Asia. But for the last 15 years, I've run my own studio, which has meant getting to know the business side of things. That meant reading up on business practices and learning, sometimes the hard way, what makes for a stable and profitable business. In looking at the business of writing, the first thing I realized was that writing is a terrible business because it has a laughably low barrier to entry. In MBA terms, you cannot build a moat around a business based on writing. To illustrate my point, here's Omar Abdullah, a co-founder of The Smart Cube, a business consultancy firm with offices in Europe and the US to explain the concept of having a moat around a business. Competition is a fact of life in just about every industry. And with globalization, technology, and a host of other driving factors, it's only going to become more and more acute. But even in these extremely competitive industries, there are companies that stand out from the fray. Companies that are profitable and successful at a level above everyone else. And all of them, every single one of them, share one common trait. They built a moat around their business. A moat that makes them impenetrable, or at the very least, extremely difficult to attack. How they've done it is as varied as there are industries. Some have built tremendous scale, allowing them to be cost leaders. Others have built fundamentally superior products that allow them to capture higher margins. Regardless of the approach, the lesson is clear. To be truly successful for the long term, to capture what economists like to call supernormal profits, it's essential for businesses to identify, design, and build a moat around their business. By the way, at the beginning of every episode of No One Not, there's a three-second Sonic logo for Splicecast, the company which produces this podcast. That's Omar on guitar. It used to be that all you needed to become a writer was a pen and some paper. Now, any computer with internet access will let you work on a manuscript and back it up to the cloud. It's so easy to start writing that it's mind-boggling to even think of potentially how many aspiring authors are out there. In looking at Singapore's literary scene, I made a few choices to help focus this two-part finale for season two. The first was to look at authors who write books novels, non-fiction, or collections of poetry. In essence, creative writing published as a standalone work. Our writers have gone the route of having a publisher, 
which generally means their book is of a higher standard. The second choice was to skip self-published authors. Lately, self-publishing seems to be the chosen path of scammers to promote their business by self-publishing e-books and touting themselves as authors. Our first episode will delve into the process that a book undertakes from being an idea in a writer's mind to becoming a physical book on a shelf for sale. This process involves a writer and a publisher. The second episode will explore what happens after a writer is published and what opportunities and obstacles lie ahead. First, the writers. Every book has one thing in common. There's a beginning. Let's hear from a few of our writers on how they started their writing journeys. First up is Jocelyn Suarez, who began writing when she was eight years old. I would write very circular stories about like a girl who would go out of her house and then have this tiny adventure and then come back home. That was pretty much it. And then sometime in secondary school, I got into poetry. And when I moved to Singapore, it was like the first exposure to the art scenes in Singapore. I met this guy who knew a lot about poetry, like the poetry scene, the spoken word scene, and I just really fell in love. So I did poetry for a long time, almost a decade now. And then I just decided sometime last year to do long form. So now I'm writing novels. Charmaine Leong is the author of 17A Kyung Sak Road, a book about her childhood growing up in Chinatown. I was an only child. I grew up with um, not very many people to talk to, so I started journaling when I was about 12, 13 years old. And it was my way of expressing a lot of the feelings that I had, the emotions that I was processing, um, having grown up in a district that was um, a red light district. So it wasn't really a thought of publishing it, but wanting to just pen down the stories. And it was really after my uh, best friend who read the book and read parts of what I wrote that said you should really think about, you know, finding a publisher to put this story out there. Wayne Ray is an author best known for the short story collection Tales from a Tiny Room and is the co-creator of the comic Mr. Memphis with Benjamin G. My superhero origin as an author was to when I was in primary three, I think. So I was probably like nine. We had these compositions to write for for English class. And I think it was a substitute teacher that asked us to write about time. For some reason, the topic I chose was basically Ninja Turtles fan fiction. It was um, the four Ninja Turtles traveling through time. When I handed it in, at the end of the class, the teacher asked me to stay back and... She called me to the front and she said, this is really good. You should do more of this. From that moment on, I knew I wanted to be a writer and a storyteller. I wish I could remember that teacher's name. I I still can't for the life of me. So since then, I've wanted to be a writer. The the goal always was to publish at least a collection of short stories because I'm a huge Ray Bradbury fan and I love these short stories. In order to present something to a publisher to be considered for publishing as a book, the author must write their book. Writers in Singapore typically juggle a full-time job with their passion for writing. Figuring out how to manage their time varies from writer to writer. Jerry Lim is a full-time writer who has contributed to several notable magazines, worked in Los Angeles, and interviewed major artists, including legends like David Bowie. Now he writes articles on the wine industry. He's published several books, including the best-selling Invisible Trade, High Class Sex for Sale in Singapore, about the escort business in the city. 
I asked him to share some insight into his methodology for how he approaches writing. I don't think I have a single set method, to be honest with you. My day varies. But I will say that you need to come to terms with your introspection, your ability to be alone and to enjoy that aloneness to write because you have no other way of doing it except for that. And then to, to spend two or three hours laboring at your craft. And that is really the big thing. You know, you have to be able to sit down and do it and not get distracted by saying, you know, getting up and going to the fridge and getting a pizza or whatever and, and drinking beer. And then before you know it, nothing will get done. For me, I, I'm very good at that. I can sit down and I, I have nothing with me except my notes, and I just write. Don't ask me how I got it. You know, it's just a gift that I've been able to, to do this, and it's been a blessing, you know. Justin Suarez has her method for getting the first draft on paper. Your first draft has to be just whatever you want to write. You know, you vomit out all the words, and then you slowly edit them, make something that's more polished. But you can't do that if you keep looking at the empty page and get scared because it's empty. Sebastian Sim is one of the rarest of local writers. He has written in Mandarin and English, all while holding down a full-time job. It takes a significant commitment to find the time to write. The thing is, as somebody who's holding a full-time day job, I have to really squeeze time to do my writing. So in order to maintain a Twitter account or something like, like that, it takes a lot of time. I don't think I'm able to do that at all. Because I do shift work, so if I, my shift starts late, I will work in the afternoon. Uh, if my shift ends early, I'll probably catch a 2-3 hours sleep and wake up at midnight to do, because I need to do my writing when it's quiet. I find that the hours that suits me the best is from 3 a.m. to 11 a.m. That's when my mind works best. And I find it very conducive, the environment, the quietness, the fact that everybody else is sleeping. For writers who aspire to be published, one thing that can creep up on them is imposter syndrome, which can be counterproductive and create a lot of self-doubt. Jocelyn explains. It feels like when you're making a collection, it encapsulates who you are as a poet, as, as an artist. And so it represents you at that stage of your life. Part of me is a little bit afraid of putting together a collection uh, because the critical part of your brain saying, well, you don't have enough. But another part of me is objectively thinking that maybe there isn't enough poems that could create a coherent collection because every single collection should have like a coherent idea. And I don't think I've reached that point where I've written enough about one specific idea to create a collection. The whole imposter syndrome of not being sure whether or not you're actually an artist because also you are this other thing. When you tell your co-workers that, oh, I have a thing tonight and they go, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm going to read some poems at this event. They'll say, oh, is that your hobby? <laughs> and it's funny because it's not just a hobby, not for me. At the end of the day, when I die, right, my life's work is going to be the stuff that I've written. It's not just a hobby. <laughs> Regardless of which method works best for a writer and how they overcome the hurdles to complete their work, the goal is always the same, to be published and to get their book out into the world. For Jerry Lim, he started as a journalist. Actually, this started in Singapore when I worked for a newspaper called New Nation. I had a, a stint doing temporary work, and they got me to interview uh, musicians. And I found that I had a natural skill for it, and it stuck with me. So when I went to Los Angeles and I graduated in journalism, I decided to like, find work. And one of the immediate things I thought of was to interview musicians. And it turned out I was a very good thing. I was very good at it. 
He then turned entrepreneur and co-founded the magazine, which led to his first book. It was kind of an accident. Big O Magazine, whom I was one of the co-founders of, they wanted to do books, and they asked if I would write the first book, which is a compilation of my interviews with rock stars, including David Bowie, and it had Pete Townsend, and R.E.M., and Joan Jett, and all these people, you know? And I thought, okay, I'll do it, you know? So I, I put out the book Inside the Outsider in 1997, and uh, the rest is history. Becoming a published author is the dream of most aspiring writers in Singapore. Jerry shares some sage advice that there's more to the life of a writer beyond that first published book. If your goal is to publish a book and you do it and you're happy, great. But if your goal is to go beyond that and, and to do more books like I am doing now, that's a different goal. You have to set your sights longer and look in terms of the long run. That's what I'm trying to do right now with the new book I'm working on. I can only talk a little bit about it. It's a ghost-written biography of a sex worker in Singapore who's a student. She works part-time, and it's about her life, her double life. I'll cover more about Jerry's work in the next episode, which looks at what happens after you're a published writer. Eventually, a writer has to take the plunge to nut up or shut up and approach a publisher and see if they can get a deal for their work. Writers, i found, like most creative types, want to spend their time creating content. A publisher will handle the rest. Once a manuscript is finished, the to-do list is long and includes things like layout, printing, marketing, distribution into bookshops and online sales, all while taking on the financial risk. Much like writing itself, when you think it through, it's probably not the most attractive business in the world. I'm in Chiang Bahru, often labelled the hipster capital of Singapore, where there seems to be an inordinately large number of bakeries. I'll explore more about this in our third season of the Know or Not podcast, which will focus on the local foodie scene. For now, I'm heading into a bookstore called Books Actually, which is home to both a bookstore and a publisher to meet Singapore Publishing's OG, Kenny Leck. Why, why are we still around for the last 14 years? Obviously, books actually sell books. You know, we don't sell cats, we don't launder money, we don't have a gambling den outside my backyard, how I wish I could, uh, but I literally sell a book just to pay the rent. Like, if you want to be a bookseller, one has to look at it as a career that requires you to be in it for years. You want to be really good at it, you will know how to serve the reader, you know. Imagine a reader comes up to you, Hey, do you remember uh, this Booker Prize winner from like two decades back? It's about a boy and a tiger and a ship. I mean, of course it was made a movie, so it's really famous, right? But I mean, for booksellers, it was one of the best-selling Booker Prize winners, Life of Pi, by Yen Martel. You want to know that you got to be there in the first place, you know. And that's what, to me, being a good bookseller is. You have to be involved, you have to be committed. In the last decade and a half, the world of books has seen the advent of tablets for viewing e-books. And a recurring theme from many media outlets is that attention spans have shortened, so much so that books are considered too long for the next generation of readers. I asked Kenny if he'd noticed the change in the market for physical books. To be honest, I don't think it's changed. Whether it's terms of like the market audience, uh, I don't think it's changed much either from the publishers. Book trends are always book trends. You're always going to get a particular trend that will surface up. Whether it's that, like, I mean, 
for our time there was Vampire Fiction, then Erotica, then now Crazy Rich Asians. So it's really very part and parcel of what the book trade is. Uh, you're always going to get book trends, right? I really don't see much changes uh, in terms of the trade itself. The local film industry operates within a challenging marketplace. A cinema ticket costs the same, whether you see a local film or a mega blockbuster from Disney with a budget that's a hundred times bigger. And this makes life so much harder for local productions. The same theory applies to local books versus international books. Starting a publishing company in Singapore, working with local writers, is not going to be easy going. When we shifted to Changbaru, business definitely got way better. That's where you fall in a human fallacy where when you have money, you just got to spend the money. <laughs> uh, and that's what sort of happened with us, I guess. I mean, as in through the years, we've always uh, knew the writers themselves through the bookstore. Some writers would pop in a bookstore, of course support it. I know they're also checking if their books are in the store too. <laughs> um, you'll be friends with them and sometimes become really close friends, you know. And of course you you hear that, hey, you know, I have a manuscript but there's no publisher to turn to. You know, and it's more often that case. At a point in time when we jumped into publishing was when business was getting better, we had some money set aside and we said, okay, why not let's try publishing? The publishing company that Kenny started in 2005 is Math Paper Press. To be honest, I'm still not sure is it a, was it a good or bad decision. Like everybody knows that we have been trying to like work at trying to raise funds to secure our own permanent space. To be honest, I think if we didn't went in publishing, we might have achieved it. Publishing itself, there's pros and cons. The biggest con obviously is the amount of resources, the financial resources it, it, it removes from the bookstore. And so, you know, of course, the pros is that when, of course, you stumble upon a title that you publish and it sells really well, it is a money spinner in that sense. If a publisher operates purely on a risk versus reward ratio, they're going to bring safe titles to market. That means established writers writing on subjects chosen for the broadest appeal factor. This is almost the exact opposite of Kenny's philosophy. Some will call me the original gangster, the OG. <laughs> I publish almost anything and everything. Um, I think we are fairly quite a low gatekeeper. I'm not averse to publishing like a very young writer or any writer with a debut effort. Some of the books that we publish, uh, obviously there's quite a um, heavy push for titles that pushes the boundaries. So it was quite common to publish authors uh, from the LGBTQI community. Uh, we are like this benevolent dictator, you know, trying to dictate what books get published. I mean, that's what we are at publishers. You, you are gatekeepers. You can call yourself a gatekeeper, you can call yourself a dictator, you can call yourself authoritative, you can call yourself a, a, a consultative publisher, you know, but you're still calling the shots, right? If you're the one calling the shots, you're the one putting the money in, the author is not paying you to publish, that means you're dictating how it runs. As long as the work stands on its own, it's definitely worth doing. As a publisher, every book Kennedy publishes has a cost to bring to market and a hope for sales to bring in a good profit. Some businesses will set up complex spreadsheets to assess the risk and rewards of any new venture, but Math Paper Press is not a fan of this conservative approach. So I've got blank blood in me, and no, there's no financial spreadsheet, there's, there's no goal. I mean, obviously, we do a fair amount of set of work, you know, the marketing, the publicity, the events, you know, that's what 
a publisher should do. And of course, you hope that you hit jackpot. But more often than not, and I really mean it, publishing is like you going to Marina Bay Sands and giving it at the blackjack table. Let's give it a few rounds, you know. You know, do or die. You hit it big, you know, you go to a fruit machine, a jackpot machine, and you really hit jackpot. I guess there are times you really get better at it, but there are times also there can be trends in publishing again. So sometimes, of course, if you're the early adopters of the trend, I guess it helps a lot. Then again, there's just no clear formula. There's goals, I mean, obviously, objectives, this title come out. And of course, we have to be realistic sometimes, right? When we know we push out this title and, and we know that, okay, it's only going to hit this amount of quantity of sales. And we're like, okay, that, that's all we expect of it. If it does any better, good. It doesn't does any better, you know, that's what we have been working for, right? We shouldn't get too disappointed because at the underlying base of every single work that, that we put out, regardless of all the so-called financial goals that we set for it or the numbers of copies that we hope that will sell, the reason we put it out is because we want one more perspective out there. I mentioned early on that the writers we would talk to would be those who work in fiction and non-fiction books, but also poets who publish collections of their works. The reason is that poetry book sales have a decent track record in Singapore. Poetry does sell in Singapore. I think partly because it does have a history and that history contributes to that visibility, that awareness. It comes in its various uh, permutations, whether it's as a written word uh, or is it in poetry events that you see happens uh, on the island, week in, week out, you know. So that's the tradition. So um, poetry is just here to stay. So here comes the million dollar question for aspiring authors. What's the process to get your manuscript over to Math Paper Press for consideration? Hi, you can go to our website, scroll way to the bottom of the website, there's a submission criteria, follow the submission criteria and then you'll have a chance of us taking a look. Everybody has to go through some form of process to get things done. And I think if you feel that your work is, is truly good in that sense, and I think everybody believes their own work is truly good, follow the process. If Math Paper Press doesn't come back to a writer with an offer to publish, it's not the end of the world. In the tech startup ecosystem, they love to say that failure is a great teacher and that it's best to fail fast so you can get on to the next thing. It seems brutal, and to Kenny's credit, he offers a nugget of wisdom. If it doesn't work, try and try again. When the most cliche thing is always when you read stories about other writers that got rejected, Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, the most famous one, so if you're someone that truly believes in your writing, the process, go through the process. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, but then you just got to try. After 14 years of running books actually, what does the future hold for Kenny? Still like working towards scrimping, saving, earning, to buy that, that permanent space. And something that I think, I won't say we are superly overly confident, but there are moments when we feel a little bit more hope, I guess. And I think we just got to continue working at it. There's always been like, let's rely less on others, just rely on oneself. It's good to ask for help, and it's always good to be able to know how to ask for help also. But at the same time, if we want to achieve the things we want to achieve, then we better do it ourselves as well. You don't do things yourself, you will never learn to do it better. Yeah, and I think that has always been more or less the way we approach things. We've covered the path of a book from the writer's mind through the publishing process to be on a shelf for sale. 
what happens after that? Join me for the season finale of season two of the No One Up podcast out in two weeks and be ready to be surprised by a truth that is stranger than fiction. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crafted By from the No One Up podcast. It was produced and hosted by me, Ken Delbridge, and my thanks to everyone who sat for interviews. For more information and links, check out this episode's show notes or visit our website, knowornot.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps to support this podcast and lets other people find us. Do subscribe to hear new episodes. We have new shows every two weeks. If you have a friend who you think would like this podcast, do share us via social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 